morning, Calvary Bible Church. It's so good to be with you this morning. I love this church. Yeah, I love your pastor, uh, Chris and Coda Black, are dear, dear friends. I've known them for a number of years. I actually had the privilege of doing their wedding uh, back a few years ago. And so uh, this is in many ways like coming home, and I'm so thankful for what God is doing here. And this is my first Sunday to be here in your new home, uh, your new physical home. Isn't this a tremendous blessing? Praise be to God. I, I, I can't tell you the number of times I used to live over here in Homewood Hills that I would drive right here on Tallahassee Road onto Whitehead Road and, and pass this building. But now to see it as a place where the gospel is going forth and Jesus is being praised and adored, wow, I can't think about, uh, I'm so amazed by what God is doing and what God's going to do in the days to come. Now, if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, I want you to grab it and open to Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah chapter 6. And this morning, I want to bring to you a message entitled, Prepared for a Mission, Prepared for a Mission. And uh, Isaiah is one of my favorite books of the Bible, and uh, this call and commissioning of Isaiah is certainly one of my uh, favorite stories in God's Word, and we're going to unpack this familiar story in just a little bit. But have you ever been in a place in life, and maybe you're guilty, like I am often, of getting so focused on details that you kind of miss the big picture? You know, maybe you're in a conversation and you're just so focused on the details of what's being shared that you miss the main point, or maybe you miss a joke because you're focused on some detail in the story that's being told. Well, I, I heard this story of a customs agent who worked on the border, and his job was to inspect trucks that were coming through the border. And so he just began to be suspicious of this one particular truck driver that would come through his security checkpoint once a week. And so as this truck would come by, he just knew something was up. And so he began to inspect every detail of this truck. He would begin to remove panels from the truck. He took a mirror and took it underneath the truck just to see what was going on. But he never could find anything. And week after week, this truck driver would come through. He would even go to the extreme of using sonar and x-ray and everything else, but to no avail, could not find anything that this truck driver was smuggling. Well, many years went by, and he got to know this guy, and the border agent was getting ready to retire. And uh, before he was retiring, he called this truck driver over, and he said, now listen, man, I know that you're a smuggler. I just, I know it in all of my heart that you've been smuggling something, but for the life of me, I cannot figure out what it is. I'm about to retire, and I promise you, I'm not going to report you. I'm not going to tell anybody what you're smuggling, but please, I just got to know, what are you smuggling? And the guy looked at him, and he said, Trucks. <laughs> Trucks. I mean, this guy was so focused on details that he missed the big picture. And you know what? That story reminds me of the church of our Lord Jesus Christ, us. We can get so bogged down on details of ministry, of discipleship, of service, that sometimes we miss the bigger picture of why we exist. You know, there are a lot of good things that take place in the church. I'm so thankful for the ministries that, you're, that you guys are a part of. I'm so thankful that there are people right now that are serving there in the nursery and loving on our children and teaching our children the gospel. I'm so thankful that we do small groups and we have accountability and discipleship together. 
But if we're not careful, we can get so focused on all of those things that are going on inside the walls of the church that we miss the fact that the church actually exists for out there. The church actually exists for a mission. And God wants us to be involved in that mission. In other words, the gospel is not to end just with ourselves. In other words, God is so good that He has given us His grace and mercy through His Son, Jesus Christ. And we need to be recipients of that grace, and we need to glory in that grace. But if that grace simply stops with us, we've missed its intended purpose. God wants to use us to be conduits of His grace, of His gospel, to the world around us. In fact, listen to the way the psalmist puts it in Psalm 96. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. We've been singing this morning. We've been praising the name of Jesus. But look what it also says. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. In fact, even worship is not to be an end in itself. Worship is, be, is, is a vehicle to get the gospel to the nations. In other words, God has saved us and given us new life in order that we might be His hands and His feet to those around us. Amen? Over the past couple of weeks, I've been having conversations with college students of just kind of struggling with what is my purpose in life? What, what am I supposed to be doing with this life that God has given me? And maybe you're in that place this morning as well. Maybe you're trying to really figure out what is God's plan for my life? What does God want me to do? And I'm not going to be able to stand up here and answer the specific details of where you're supposed to work or what career choice you're supposed to make or who you're supposed to marry or anything of that nature. But I will tell you this, that God has a very specific purpose in you fulfilling his mission in this world. And I can't tell you anything more exciting than being a part of just that. And so I want you to embrace the fact that God has called you to be on mission with him. But God is wanting to do a work of preparation in you in order for you to be effective in that mission. And that's what we see in this sixth chapter of Isaiah, that before God could use Isaiah to fulfill God's purpose for his life, before Isaiah could be used for the mission that God intended for Isaiah to be on, God had to do something in Isaiah first. So if you have your Bibles, let's look at this text. If you don't, it'll be on the screen. Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook in the vo at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I'm lost, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from, with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. 
Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would take your holy, authoritative, inerrant word today, God, and that you would make application of it to our lives so that we would be a different people when we walk out of these doors than the way we were when we came in. For your name's sake, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Three things I want us to see this morning about this preparation that God has given us for the mission that he has set us on. The first is this. Our mission is a response to God's glory. Notice there, when Isaiah sees God, everything changes. Everything changes. In fact, let me just throw this out there. Did you know that the ultimate purpose of the ultimate purpose of missions is not simply the salvation of the lost? I mean, the reason that we go out, the reason you're going to be going out, many of you this afternoon, and declaring the gospel of Jesus is not only for the sake of the lost. I'm thankful that people are getting saved, but it's ultimately for the glory of God. The ultimate purpose of missions is the worship of Jesus among all peoples. In fact, John Piper has famously said that the goal of missions is the gladness of the peoples in the greatness of God. In fact, when you look at the end of time, We see this revelation here that God gives Isaiah. But when you look at John's revelation in the book of of Revelation, you see what the ultimate purpose of missions is going to be. Look at it. It's on the screen. Revelation chapter 7, beginning in verse 9. And after this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. Listen to this. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, that's Jesus, clothed in white robes with palm branches in hand. So these are the redeemed. These are the saved from all languages, all people groups. In other words, 16,000 plus people groups represented around the world are going to be represented around the throne of God. And look what they're doing. Verse 10. uh, They are crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. (laughs) I love this. I love this, that the ultimate end of the mission of God is the glory of God. Don't miss that. That the ultimate purpose for us to be on mission with God is for the praise, the exaltation, and the worship of King Jesus. And I would argue that worship is both the fuel of missions and the goal of missions. In fact, when you read in Matthew chapter 28, right before Jesus gives his disciples the Great Commission, do you know what they were doing? They were worshiping. They were on the mountaintop, and they were worshiping Jesus, and then Jesus gives them the Great Commission that they are to fulfill. And so I would argue that for us, worship is both the fuel of that drives us to be on mission with God, but it's also our goal. We want people to worship Jesus because he alone is worthy. And this is similar to the vision that God gives Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. He gets a vision of Jesus. 
And what does he see when we see this vision of, uh, of, of God in Isaiah chapter 6? Well, there's five aspects of God's nature that Isaiah sees. The first is this. He's alive. Notice he says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Notice this. He's contrasting the fact that this beloved king, now if you've studied the life of Uzziah, you know that he was a great king and he kind of went off the rails a little bit toward the end of his, his reign there, but he was a beloved king, okay? But Isaiah is contrasting this picture of a king who was beloved but is now dead to a greater king, Lord Jesus Christ, who is very much alive. In fact, Psalm 90 verse 2 says this, before the mountains were brought forth or uh, ever you had formed the earth and behold, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Think about it. Every ruler that's existed on planet earth is either dead or will die, right? Every king, every ruler, every president. Go back in your history books and look. They're either dead or they're going to die. But Jesus is very much alive. And so Isaiah gets this picture of a God who is alive and is well and is sitting on his throne. The second aspect of God that he sees is that God has all authority. Notice again in verse 1, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. What this means, sitting on the throne, means that he has the absolute sovereign right to rule the world. It also means that God sits higher than any other throne. It signifies, it signifies God's ultimate authority to rule and reign. Now, let me ask you this. It's also true of our lives individually. It's not just the fact that God is ruling and reigning the universe. That's all good and fine, right? I mean, we know that God's in control. We're thankful for that. We can all give assent to that reality. But the question for us this morning is this. Is God ruling and reigning in our lives today? Does God have ultimate authority in your life? Who's calling the shots in your life right now? Is it Jesus or is it you or is it someone else? See, Jesus alone has the right and the authority to have rule over us. The next thing, fourth thing that I see here, third thing, I'm sorry, is that God is beautiful. Look at verse 1 again. I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. I think about this because I, I told you I did Chris and Coda's wedding. I've done many weddings, and uh, there's nothing more radiant on uh, her wedding day than a bride. I, I don't know what it is. It's the dress, the makeup, just the sheer joy and love that she has. But there's something so radiant on uh, her wedding day uh, as a bride. Uh, how many of you watched the royal wedding back in May? Let me see your hands, okay? Now, guys, if you raised your hands, I think there might be cause for church discipline here. But... Uh, <laughs> I'm just saying a lot of people tuned in to watch that wedding. So that wedding cost some $43 million. A lot of that was spent on security. Meghan Markle's wedding dress cost over $400,000. I mean, whoa, right? But Meghan Markle in all of her beauty and all of her splendor in that royal wedding compares nothing, listen, compares nothing to the beauty of our God. When we stand back and we realize how magnificent and beautiful and glorious Jesus is, it ought to make our hearts skip a beat. And you know, that's the purpose of worship. It's to come in together and be reminded of the fact of how great our God is, how beautiful our God is. And not only that, another attribute that we see here in this text is that God is holy. 
Verse 3, And one of these seraphim they called to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The book of Revelation gives us this picture that the angels in heaven, day and night without end, declare God is holy, holy, holy. What does that mean? It just means that God is set apart. That God is unique. That there is nothing or no one who compares to our God. He is and will always be holy. There is nothing who compares to Him. And then finally, in this picture of God's glory, we see that God is glorious. Verse 3 says, the whole earth is full of His glory. God's glory is what we long for. It's the very purpose of our existence. In fact, Isaiah 43, 6 and 7 says, Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone called by my name and created for my glory. Did you know that you, if you are a child of God today, that you exist for the glory of God? You were created for God's glory. So the question is, are you living out your created purpose? Are you fulfilling the, the design that God has for you, and that is to glorify Him. Now, how do we know if we're living for God's glory? You know, that's a question we ought to ask. How do we know if we're living for God's glory? Well, I would ask you this. Are you captivated by God? You see, if you're living for God's glory, then you're captivated by God. In fact, I can remember when I first met Karen in college, we, uh, we were friends, we uh, were in a Bible study together, and oh, after, as I got to know her in that Bible study, I started getting attracted to Karen and wanted to go out on a date with Karen, and so after the first time of asking her out, she shot me down, you know, that was kind of that story, and, uh, but after a while, she came to her senses and she said yes, and she uh, actually went out on a date with me, and I can tell you this, when Karen started dating me, I wanted other people to know about it. And we dated for about eight months, and I was so proud that she was my girlfriend. And then on Christmas Eve, 1987, I put a ring on her finger, and now we were engaged. And now this was before Facebook, so we didn't have Facebook to be able to advertise our engagement. So I just told people about it. I was so proud of the fact that I was engaged to Karen. And I still, to this day, I tell you, we've been married 30 years now. And I love my wife more than I've ever loved her. She's sitting in the back of the room. I love her. I really do. I'm so thankful that God has given me the gift of Karen. And I'm not ashamed to tell you how much I love her. I'm not ashamed to tell you how proud of her I am. But think about it. All of us have something in our lives that we're thankful for, that we're proud of, and that we're unashamed to tell others about, right? I see it. You see it all over Facebook, people bragging on their kids, people bragging on, you know, a, a promotion at work. It may be any number of things. But listen, when we're captivated with something, we're not ashamed to tell others about it. Can I tell you, the more captivated you are with Jesus, the more unashamed you will be to tell others about him. Yes, you can go out and you can simply share truth about Jesus. And, and, and certainly that's fine. I, I, but there's so much more than that. We need to be so captivated with the glory of our King and the, and, 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 and the beauty of Jesus that we want others to know this Jesus that we've experienced ourselves. I sat at Sips the other day with this young man. I met him on campus a couple of weeks ago. He doesn't know Christ, but he was willing to meet up and talk about the claims of God. 
And we did for about an hour and a half. We talked about different scriptures and different claims. But you know, at the end of the conversation, I just said to him, listen, we can sit here and debate truths and concepts all day long. The bottom line is this. I want you to know this Jesus that I know. I want you to love this Jesus that I love. I want you to experience this Jesus that I've experienced. And listen, if you want to be effective in the mission of God, you need to fall in love with him. Let me say that again. If you want to be effective in the mission of God, you need to fall in love with him. You need to be captivated by him. Listen to what Tico Rice says. When our mouths are shut about the gospel, it shows that something is wrong in our hearts. Leslie Newbigin said, missions begin with this kind of explosion of joy. The news that the rejected and crucified Jesus is alive is something that cannot possibly be suppressed. It must be told. Who could be silent about such a fact? I mean, if Jesus really is the King of kings and Lord of lords, if Jesus really has captured our hearts, how can we be silent about this amazing Jesus? Our mission is a response to God's glory. If we're not captivated, we're not going to be passionate about his missions. But I want to give this second truth to you this morning. Our mission is a response to God's grace. It's a response to God's grace. There are two observations here about Isaiah's divine encounter that I want you to see. Look back at your Bible at verse 5. After Isaiah sees God in all of his brilliance and all of his beauty and all of his authority and all of his glory, look what he says. And I said, woe is me, for I'm lost. Woe is me. Woe is me. It's interesting to me that if you study the book of Isaiah in chapter 5, you see Isaiah is pronouncing woes to the nation. In fact, there's six different times in Isaiah chapter 5 that Isaiah says, woe to the nation of Judah. He gives them condemnation because of their idolatry because of their drunkenness and all of these different things woe to you woe to you woe to you but after isaiah sees god woe is me woe is me in other words how many times have we been in a sermon where we've been hearing some preaching and we're thinking man i wish so and so was here to hear that you know or we elbow our spouse you know you really need to be paying attention right now listen i can tell you this when we experience god we're not thinking about our neighbor. We're not thinking about our spouse. We're thinking about me. God, woe is me. This is a word that I need to hear today. Isaiah is devastated with his sin in the light of God's holiness and glory. Now let me ask you this morning, when is the last time you had a woe is me moment? Um, experiencing this kind of brokenness is essential for the mission of God. And let me tell you why. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I was at a meeting with um, the International Mission Board in Atlanta. And these were some of the vice presidents of the IMB, and they were talking to me and several others about things that are roadblocks to people going onto the mission field as career missionaries. Things like debt are, are barriers to people going on the mission field, right? Uh, theological issues are, are reasons that uh, people are, are not able to go on the mission field. But the number one reason that men, especially young men, are disqualified from being appointed as missionaries with the International Mission Board is pornography. The number one reason, far and away, is pornography. And I think, wow, 
There are so many young men that could be used on the mission field to declare the glory of God, but they're so in love with their sin that they're not effective in the mission of God. Listen, we need to repent. We need to have that moment of saying, woe is me, God. I've got sin in my life. I need to come before your holiness and I need to be broken over my sin so that you can cleanse me and use me for your glory. Look at verses 6 and 7 because we see this grace being applied to Isaiah. I love here how it says, one of the seraphim flew to me having his hand in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar and he touched my mouth and he said behold this has touched your lips your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for you know what i love so much about that is that isaiah did not take the initiative for his cleansing god took it all god took it all the seraphim took the coal flew to isaiah touched his lips Incidentally, it's interesting to me that God touched Isaiah's lips and that was the point that the grace was applied. Why? Because the grace wasn't just for Isaiah. The grace was applied to Isaiah's lips because God wanted to transform Isaiah's mouth so that Isaiah could be used as a mouthpiece to the others around him, to those around him, to the world around him. And so this grace was uh, applied to Isaiah in verse 7 it says your, uh, your sin is atoned for listen don't miss this vital truth atonement is not simply God forgiving our sin it is God paying for our sin you see the real beauty of the atonement is that Jesus took all of the wrath of God that we rightly deserved you see when you understand the grace in other words gr the grace of God is not simply God saying I know you're sorry. We'll just choose to overlook that. That's not grace. You know what atonement really is? God being just and saying, sin must be punished. Sin must be paid for. All of your disobedience, all of your wickedness, all of your rebellion against me, it must be punished. And it must be punished by death. And so what does God do? He sends His perfect Son who never committed one sin, never even had a sinful thought. And what does He do? He stands in our place by absorbing the wrath of God against sin and He takes all of God's wrath and He takes all of our sin and He takes all of our shame and, it's, and He's nailed to the cross and He dies. He dies the death that we deserve to die. He didn't deserve it. He was perfect. He was sinless. But he took God's wrath on our behalf so that we could be set free and so that we could live. And my friends, listen, that is the grace of God. And when you understand the grace of God, listen, it will fuel the mission of God. The more you understand how much you've been forgiven and the fact that Jesus stood in your place you're going to want to declare that grace to other people. That's why God touched Isaiah's lips. Because Isaiah was someone who had been bringing condemnation to other people because of their sin. But once he understood his sin and the fact that God took care of his sin on his, for him, he then became a mouthpiece to others to be on mission with God. You see, the fundamental message of God's rescuing grace is that we have a responsibility to share that with the world. There are some 3.1 billion people in the world that know nothing of the atoning grace of God. And listen, church, it's our responsibility to tell them. 
It's our responsibility to tell them. We have both the responsibility and the privilege. This coming Tuesday, my wife and I will step on a plane going to the Middle East. And we're going to a place where it's primarily Muslim. And they don't know the gospel. But what a privilege. What a responsibility we have to take this grace of God that he's given to us and share it with others. Others that think that they've got to keep a list of rules and hopefully at the end of their life, if they kept the rules good enough, God will give them entrance into heaven. But the reality is they're on their way to hell. And the only thing that will keep them from, go, uh, from going there is the grace of God. And so we have a responsibility and privilege to share that grace with them. So let's wrap up our time together. I want to give you this third and final truth. Our mission should be a response to God's invitation. God's always initiating his good plans and purposes for our lives. And make no mistake about it, church, God wants you to be on mission with him. And once Isaiah has this vision of God's glory, and then Isaiah realizes his sin and is touched by God's grace, Look what happens next. God gives him an invitation. Look at verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. Notice that God asked Isaiah a very specific question without giving the details. He didn't say, uh, I'm sending you to you know, this place or that place, to this person or that person. He said, Who am I going to send? Who will go for us? Who will be on mission with me? Who will be my hands and feet? Who will be my mouthpiece of grace? He doesn't give him the details. He doesn't give him the specifics. He just simply gives him the invitation. But notice Isaiah's response. Here am I. Send me. Here am I. Send me. Listen, church. Our God is a sending God. Our God is a sending God. And the sentness of God results in the sentness of his people. Let me be more specific. At the end of Jesus' ministry, he gives his church the Great Commission. The most familiar of the Great Commission passages is Matthew 28, right? But there's also another Great Commission passage in John chapter 20. And this is what Jesus says at the end of his ministry. As the Father has sent me, so send I you. In other words, in the same manner that God has sent me to the world to be the light of the world, to be the salt of the earth, to be a, a representative of Almighty God, I am now sending you. So being sent is not an option for a child of God. Being sent is not for a select few that we lay hands on and send overseas. Being sent is for every single believer in Jesus Christ. You are sent. I am sent. Do you believe that? Amen? I want you to say it with me. I am sent. I am sent. Say it again. I am, sent. I am sent. You are. And if you are going to be on mission with God, you need to see yourself as being sent by God to be on mission with Him. So are you ready? God's called us. He's called us to reach our community. I'm so thankful that this church has taken that seriously and you're going out knocking on doors today. God wants you to be sent. But not only just to the community around you, you may have family members that don't know Christ. You're sent to them as well to share with them the glory and the grace of God that he's given to you. 
You're sent to people that you work with. Realize that you're a missionary in that place. God's put you there as a believer to be his hands and his feet, to be his mouth to those around you. You're sent there. But you know, I'm looking at some people in this room right now that you may be sent to the nations. There are nearly 7,000 unreached people groups in the world today. And when we talk about unreached people groups, we're talking about just a very small percentage of believers in that people group that know Christ. Okay? And in some cases, there's no believers there. In fact, we were in Nepal earlier this year, and our uh, missionary that was there that we partnered with was telling us, he said, Scott, I've got four unengaged, unreached people groups that we're trying to reach right now. They've never even heard once about Jesus Christ. Never. And they're living their lives in the, mountain, the Himalayan mountains, never once even hearing about the gospel of Jesus Christ. What if God wanted you to be on mission with Him? What if God is sending you to say, you know what? I want you to quit your job. I want you to raise support. And I want you to join me on mission, reaching unengaged, unreached people groups with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, the Bible tells us that the gospel will be preached to the ends of the earth and then the end will come. And you know what? I believe that Calvary Bible Church is to be a part of that global mission of God taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. So our responsibility is right here in our own Jerusalem. It's right here in our nation, but it's also the ends of the earth. So my question to you today is, how will you respond? Are you prepared for God's mission? Have you experienced God's glory? Have you been touched by the grace of God? And then finally, have you surrendered and said, Lord, here am I, send me. I want you to bow your heads with me for just a moment as we prepare to close. As I said, we've all been sent. It's just a matter of to whom we've been sent. But we're all sent. So maybe during this time of invitation, you'll just simply say, God, who are you sending me to? Maybe God's sending you to go out in this community this afternoon to be Christ's ambassador to people that live around this church. Maybe God's sending you to a family member, to a friend that you know that doesn't know Christ and you've never shared with them this good news that you say you believe. Maybe God's sending you to the nations. Would you make your prayer Isaiah's prayer this morning? Don't, don't pray it unless you mean it, but if, but if you do, if you sense God's really moving and working in your heart, would you make your prayer Isaiah's prayer this morning and say, Lord, here am I, send me. In fact, you might even open up your palms to the Lord right now, just as a a symbol of surrender to the Lord. Say, Lord, I don't know what all this means. I don't know what this may look like. I'm a little nervous about it. I'm a little frightened with what this may look like. But Lord, you've been good to me. You've shown me your glory. You've definitely shown me your grace. You've taken my sin. You died in my place. And Lord, you've invited me to be on mission with you, and I, I don't even though know what all that means or looks like. I just simply want to make myself available to you. And my prayer this morning, Lord, is here am I. Send me. 
you're able to make that prayer, make that prayer right now as a response to God, a response to God's glory, a response to God's grace, a response to God's invitation. Lord, have your way among your people today. May we realize that knowing you is the greatest thing we could ever experience. Experiencing your grace, God, is the greatest gift that we could ever receive. And Lord, being on mission with you is the greatest privilege that we could ever have. So Lord, help us today to surrender ourselves to you and truly say, here am I, send me for your glory and for your renown. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.